Well, good morning, Redeemer. Good morning, good morning. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to just review a little bit from last week. The verse that we covered last week is in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 1, where it says, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So last week we began to look at at what that 14 generations, what occurred in that time, Uh, and what we're going to do is just carry that forward this week and next week and discuss some, some things that occur that affect the context of the New Testament, that help us understand uh, some of the mysteries of the New Testament. We're going to look at these events and, and the things that happen culturally, politically, economically to, to shape the Israel that Jesus invaded. So let us together pray before we turn to the Lord our God and hear his word. Father, we thank you so much for the Advent season. We thank you that your son has come, that he um, served you, you and served your people, that he lived and died, that he rose, Lord, and that he ascended. We, we are not looking uh, to a future hope that we do not understand that is veiled to us. We, are, we, we know the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus has come. The Lord Jesus is here, and the Lord Jesus is coming. We thank you, Lord, for the great mystery of your will that was revealed in the perfect time. I pray that we would come to understand some of the complexities um, that your people were experiencing in the time, in the 14 generations, and that we would uh, come to understand your word better through understanding that time better, that we would come to understand ourselves better. We thank you, we praise you in the name of your son, and amen. Now, in last week's reading, Daniel 12, we read that God's uh, mystery was sealed up. He said, Daniel, seal up this mystery, and it will be appointed. And there will be an angel that comes, Michael, the prince of heaven, and he will free your people. And and a lot of people, I think, were very confused by the fact that we had that reading with that sermon. But that, that reading is all about the mystery. The prince of heaven did come. The prince of heaven was revealed. The prince of heaven did save God's people. He descended from heaven, and that is who Jesus is. In the Old Testament, oftentimes, Michael the archangel is a stand-in for Jesus, so much so that there is a great number of Christians who believe that the archangel Michael is Jesus. Now, I'm not one of them, but it, it's at least, if you start to look at it, reasonable that they would make this mistake. And so that was what Daniel was talking about. He's talking about a mystery. We then looked at Paul's comments in Ephesians, where it says that God's will is a mystery revealed at the fullness of time. And that fullness of time is what we considered. What, <laughs> of all the times and places for Jesus to come, he came at the perfect time in Israel in the, the first century A.D. And to us, if you stop and, you, and, and we went back and looked at the history leading up to that, it seems like a very odd time. But this is how God works. His timing is not our timing. His ways are not our ways. And I think it's very helpful for us to understand this. The 14 generations between the exile and Christ, that was roughly 578 years. Through that whole time, God veiled his plan as he was moving against Satan. Now, there's a great deal to be said about this part, but if he were to just tell everyone what he was going to do, then Satan would note also. So there is, in a sense, this great conspiracy that we read about in Psalm 2, where God is moving against Satan, but he's, he's veiling what he's doing so that everybody isn't aware, so that the enemy isn't aware. Now, partially what we saw last week 
is that it was rather easy to veil what he was doing because of Israel and how it was responding not only to the exile but to the empires of the world and to Hellenism. They, in a sense, were veiling themselves, and it was all part of God's purposes. They reacted to Gentile empires, the people of God, by becoming increasingly nationalistic, not as Israelites, but as Judeans. Understanding the kingdom of Judea is crucial to understanding the New Testament. It was not Israel that Jesus invaded. It was Judea, a foreign nation, a nation run by Gentiles. Now, the people of God reacted with political violence. They treated Hellenism as either something to be wholly rejected or wholly compromised with. They wanted the diaspora sheep to return to the pen. They wanted a reunited Judea, not a reunited Israel. This is why when Jesus comes, they're so mystified by who he is and what he's doing, because he is, as Mark tries to make it very clear to us, the true Israel. The true Israel had come, and Judea, like all the other nations, wanted nothing of it. Now, they wanted to cleanse themselves through holiness codes, and this is part of what is, is again, a large context of Jesus coming into into Judea. They thought if they made themselves clean enough, it's like a mechanistic machine, if we pull on all the right holiness levers, then God will send the Messiah. That is what they thought. That's why they were so intense about the laws that they had created, about the traditions that they had created. Judea, the kingdom Christ invaded in the incarnation, wasn't Israel. So my question is, where was Israel? Where were all of those people? What happened to David's country? What happened to the nation that the prophets were trying to get to turn back to God? What happened to all of those people? Because when you start to find out what happened during the 14 generations, in Judea, it's full of all kinds of people, but they're not God-fearing, right? Yahweh-loving Israelites. See, Yahweh had scattered Israel. He had scattered them as a priestly people throughout the world. Yahweh was teaching them to speak and think and argue in Greek, in Greek, con- in Greek um, conceptions. Yahweh was moving toward a converging point, converging point, not around a national or ethnic or tribal identity achieved through Gentile forms of empire, but toward the focal point of the incarnate Lord, the true Israel. That was the focal point. He would unite God's people around himself and then, through a united people, use the structures of Hellenism and the Roman Empire to unite the whole world. That was his plan. Now, in the first century, nobody could see it. Now, looking back, we see it's quite clear. Oh, (laughs) you scattered people all over the world so that you would have synagogues all over the world so that when the apostles went out with this message, they would have somewhere to start. You also taught them how to speak and think like Greeks because then when they were rejected by the people of God in the synagogues, they go down to the city center square and they speak the common Koine Greek. All of that was the plan. Right? All, right? All roads lead to Rome. Why do they say that? Because they have the most magnificent roads in Rome. Right? And so there the apostles are with a, play, with a way to get there and a place to go. And, and they go all over the world. And this was not an accident. The, so much of the promises of God concerning the Messiah we think are, are, are so specific to Jesus that we don't understand that there was a preparation all along where God was fulfilling these promises, and when Jesus came, everything was ready for him. Right? He didn't have to unite nations under one God because, as we see in Pentecost, there are people from all kinds of nations there worshiping the true God. Jesus would come. 
and, he, and, and the Messiah would come, and he would be the new focal point, and he would be the new sacrifice, he would be the new temple, he would be the new people, he would be the new law, he would be himself the new covenant. We eat and we drink him. Our law is him. Our identity is him. It's not based on a holiness achieved through one's own efforts, but upon the holiness of him, the Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah, the mediator of a better covenant, who fulfills the Proto-Evangelium and the covenant of the Old Testament to bring salvation to the world. Judea wanted salvation for Judea. God's intention always was to save the world, and Israel through everything that they experienced in those 14 generations, we had a narrower and narrower and narrower and narrower view of who is going to get saved. And, and what I would like us to reflect upon that is ourselves, we ourselves, just like them, get a narrower and narrower and narrower and narrower view of who it is that's going to be saved. And how often do we think the might of the church, the goodness of the Lord, the nation that we serve, is USA, USA. Right? I'm all for it. I'm all for the USA, not necessarily in its current manifestation, don't get me wrong. But how often do we become just like this? How often are we like Judeans? We're Americans. And what we go around with our F-18s is spread democracy by smart bombs, through economic manipulation, through the CIA. It's madness out there. And we, think, we look back on the Jews in the first century, the ones recorded in the New Testament that Jesus had to deal with, and we think those guys are idiots. Those guys are blind. And, and, and the whole purpose of writing these things down for us is that we begin to see the patterns in history. We begin to see the characters, not only that are in this book, but are, that are written in the book of life all around us. There are some of us so concerned with holiness codes, there are some of us so concerned with the nation that we are in, that we have forgotten the people of God. We have forgotten the world evangelistic purposes that the Lord Jesus intends to have. Now, the Judeans knew where the Messiah would come. Now, think about this. When the wise men come to Jerusalem, they say, hey, we're looking for the king. And everyone is filled with fear. They're filled with fear. Why not joy? And yet they know where they can find him. That it seems moderately incongruous to me. So who are those people? They clearly have all the, the right books. They have all the right theology. They can sit down and tell you, oh, the Messiah is going to be born right here in this town. Should we go out there and worship him, the wise men say? And they say, no, but we'll send some soldiers to slaughter everybody. Is it possible that we have all the right theology, but we do not follow it right, to its logical conclusion of worshiping the Lord that it reveals. Right? How often do, do people come to us and they say, hey, where is this king? You know, tell us about this king. And we, and we can get it out, and we have perfect theology to explain. Well, he's right here. This is him. And then do we, does that lead us to doxology? Does that lead us to worship? Or does it fill us with fear? That's what we talked about last week. How many of us, when we hear that there's another king, that we hear there's another throne, besides us on our throne, how often does that fill us with fear instead of joy? Now, enough of God's plan was evident that they would know where the Messiah would come. But they're afraid. And this is still true. 
People hear that there's another king, and, and when you go out and do some evangelism, hey, guys, don't worry. There is a king above kings, and everything is in his hand, and he can provide for you, and he loves you. And they're like, wait, 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 let's go back to the start. You said another king? You mean I'm not king? And, and Advent teaches us the basics of the faith. People are afraid when you tell them there is another king, that there is another throne. Now, last week, that's what we covered. Christ invaded not Israel, but Judea, a nation like all the other nations. But most Jews didn't actually live in Judea. The Jewish people were sold into slavery and were sent into exile from the Aegean Sea to, the, to southern Arabia and beyond. During the ex- exilic period, some, but not all, returned to Jerusalem, but there were more living outside of Jerusalem, outside of Judea, than in it. The dispersion, or diaspora, is mentioned in John and Acts in 1 Peter and in James. It's something that the, the apostles, multiple ones, were dealing with. It's a, it's a massive context to the New Testament. If you don't understand who the diaspora are, where they are, what they're doing, what happened to them, then in their, John and Acts and 1 Peter and James is going to make less sense to you. The diaspora is why the book of Acts, in, in the book of Acts, we read that Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, were all there on Pentecost. And as I've already asked, why? How does a backwater province with a tribal god get that kind of publicity? Unless God had already been doing a great deal of work for 587 years. Right? <laughs> so Jesus says, hey, hey guys, I'm going to go now. But what I want you to do, I want you to start with Israel and then go to Samaria and the ends of the earth. And those 12 guys are like, where and how are we going to start? He says, don't worry, just give it a few weeks and, 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 and just hang out and you will see what's going to happen. And they go and they wait and the Lord descends by the Holy Spirit, and the first thing that happens is that people from all over the world are converted. And so we're not waiting for some eschatological time in the future. It happens on Pentecost. First, Israelites are converted, the twelve, and then the nations are converted. And God says, go forth and do likewise. He's like, there you go. The plan, the eschatological end, is seen on the very first day that the church is born. And through this whole thing, we, we, we go into boardrooms, we, right, we go into session meetings, you have parachurch organizations, and everybody's trying to figure out, well, how are we going to make this program work? How are we going to spread Judaism throughout the world? And what we need to see is we are the church, and the plan has never changed. It was there on the very first day. It's still the plan. It's the plan for the future. The dispersion is the second aspect of the 14 generations that I want to explore as we dive deeper into these key concepts of the New Testament. The Hebrew word for diaspora actually means exile. Now, this term, dispersion, and I'll go back and forth. I don't, it doesn't really matter what you call it because in English Bibles, they translate it either way. It's either the diaspora or the dispersion. It's the same thing. Now, it denotes... The Jews themselves, who are scattered all over the world, that's how it's used in John 7.35, but it also is the place that they reside. So it's both the people and the place that they live if they're scattered all over the world. James uses it that way. So you have these two different uses of the word. 
Now, when Babylon defeated Judah in 597 BC and destroyed Jerusalem in 587 BC, they took portion of the Judeans into exile to Mesopotamia. After that time, there were at least two communities of persons named Judeans or Jews, those within Judea and those outside. This is how the dispersion began. Now, in the following century, significant Jewish populations appeared almost in every corner of the world. Egyptian king Ptolemy I captured many Jews and carried them off to Egypt about 300 BC, and they populated Alexandria, a city thereafter noted as a center of both Greek and Jewish scholarship. And this is why history is so important. I, I was, right, we study periods of history. We, we, we put everything in a box. You got classical history, you got medieval history, you got pre-modern history, you got modern history, you got the Renaissance, which doesn't actually exist. You got the Reformation, which does. You got all these periods of time. Well, I, I sat down one time and I was like, you know what I'm going to study is hermeneutics, how, how to interpret the Bible. And the first thing they started with, oh, in the Middle Ages, there were these two schools of thought. One was in Alexandria. And I was like, wait, what? I was like, you're kidding me. That's hilarious. Because during the 14 generations, one of the centers that was throwing everything out of, out of whack with their ideas was Alexandria. So you're telling me that it just carried forward. It carried forward from hundreds of years B.C. to hundreds of years A.D., the same place with the same school of thinkers influenced both before the church and after the church came, the way that Christians, the way that believers thought about and interpreted the scriptures. And, and we don't know this. We don't know this. It's just like the East-West divide that we're going to talk about. There is an Eastern church, which most Westerners ignore. There is a Western church, which most Easterners ignore, right? It's funny to me because what I, you know, when we talk about theology in America, you're like, well, what's, what's the biggest type of theology we have to deal with in America? Baptists. I love you all, but it's true, right? This is the, the inner varsity wars here. You go over to Europe, you go to, say, Poland, you go to Ukraine, you know what they're worried about? Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. And my, my Protestant American thought the first time I was over there was I thought we already dealt with all those guys because we didn't really transfer them over to the states. You know what I'm saying? We haven't even graduated yet to arguing with Eastern Orthodox guys because we're still fighting with Protestants. That's what I actually realized. I was like, oh, you guys are fighting a much older fight over here. We're, we're less mature, and we're over here arguing amongst ourselves about how we actually water on people. And you guys were over there talking about what it should and shouldn't actually be in the Nicene Creed. And I was like, that seems like a slightly more mature argument to me, which really comes down to one letter. But I, I digress. Right? <laughs> you take the S, you put the S in, the word is very different, the theology is different, you take the S out. If you don't know what I'm talking about, don't waste your time, because we still have Baptists to fight with. <laughs> we're not yet mature enough. Alexandria, it is a phenomenal place. It has had a massive effect on all of us. It's like Augustine. Most people don't know. Everyone who is a Protestant is in some form Augustinian. Most of us don't know that because it's just in everything. It's like a fish doesn't know it's wet. Well, Alexandria is the same way. Because if you read Paul then you're, re- you're, re- you're a student of the Alexandrian school. If you, if you interpret the scripture a certain way, if, if, if you say, listen, Mike, with your biblical theology and you're talking about flower petals and their significance and it's a little weird, you, you're of the Alexandrian school. You're like, you, you have, you're, it's gotten away from you, Mike. Okay, rocks aren't that important. That these two schools of thought in the Middle Ages 
still exists amongst modern Christians now. Christians who are like, no, the, the words matter and the historical context matters, but not all this flowery poetry nonsense stuff. You're just distracting everybody out on your skinny branches. And, and people think I'm joking, but this is still, this is Alexandria. It's still affecting us. Now, in the first century AD, Philo, who is a philosopher who tried to reconcile Greek thought with the, with the Old Testament, okay, he was like, you know what, there's actually more in common here than, than people realize. He actually numbered the Jews in Egypt at a million, a million. And, and Alexandria is why, when, when Jesus' father Joseph was told to leave, he was like, you know where I'm going to go where there's a lot of Jews and everything goes really well for them and they're not persecuted? Egypt. Did you ever think, why Egypt? Well, it turns out that one of the largest communities in the world of Jews who were flourishing was in Egypt. It, it would be the obvious choice. If you look at the choices presented to him, it's the obvious choice. And so here is this massive contextual issue right at the start, and most of us have no idea why, and we think it vaguely has something maybe to do with the Exodus, but we're not really sure. Now, throughout the Hellenistic period, the Jewish presence in Egypt grew such that Hellenistic Egyptian city Alexandria was considered the center of Judaism for several centuries. Originally confined to parts of Asia, especially Armenia and Iran, the diaspora later spread throughout the Roman Empire to Egypt, Asia Minor, Greece, Italy, and beyond. By the New Testament times, according to Philo, there were not less than a million Jews in Alexandria, as I said. Alexandria plays a significant cultural center through the Middle Ages. Now, elsewhere, there were also large colonies. The Romans had transplanted a sizable group of Jews to Rome. Pompey had come and liberated Judea from the Asmoneans, the Maccabees, and he gave it to some, he, he, he conquered it and said, this place is kind of garbage, so I'm going to give it to these other guys. And he didn't even con- conquer it for himself. And then that's how you get Herod and these other people in charge of things. But they had take when they came. It's so funny. Every country that comes and invades this area is like, you know, what we're going to do is take a bunch of these people with us. They seem industrious, and and so a bunch of people were in Rome, and they were actually kicked out of Rome in 139 BC. And in the Book of Acts, in chapter 18, they talk about the fact that they keep getting kicked out of Rome, and yet they kept going back. And, and that's kind of a pattern during this time. Everywhere they went, they wanted to stay, and people for a time persecuted them. And then when it got really bad, they, they exiled them and kicked the Jews out. And then the Jews, you know, kind of rest on their heels for a little while, recover a little bit, and then go back. And you can see this sort of grit that, that, that gave birth to the kind of Christian grit that we're going to see later. They were used to this pattern. So they had been in Rome. That's why Paul always wanted to go there. That's why when he goes there, there's a huge Jewish community already present because they had been there for centuries. Now, scholarly estimates of the Jewish population in Palestine at the time of Jesus' birth ranged from about 4 to 6 million. The dispersion population numbered several times that of Palestine. There were more Jews outside than inside. Communities with more than 1 million flourished in Asia Minor, Mesopotamia, and as I said, Alexandria. Strabo the geographer. Now, that is a name. I've never heard of this guy until now. Strabo the geographer. If we ever have another boy. Just kidding. I kid. I kid. Now, he notes, he noted, uh, as like a sidebar, and one of, he was a geographer, so he would make maps, but he, he made this comment, that this people has already made its way into every city, and it is not easy to find any place in the habitable, 
habitable world, which has not received this nation, and which it has not made its power felt. The Jewish people were a huge deal at this time. They were everywhere, and they were not just everywhere, they were powerful. They were powerful. As might be expected, archaeological study reveals considerable formal differences and differing degrees of cultural exclusiveness in these communities. Some of them were more closed off from the outside world than others. Some of them made compromises that others didn't. And you go around, and not all the communities were the same. However, there was some very significant unifying factors. One of them was the uniqueness of Yahweh, the uniqueness of his Torah, and the uniqueness of his people. Everywhere they went, they understood. Our God is not like other gods. His word is not like other words. His people are not like other people. You get some variance, but pretty much that was the core belief. A less happy aspect of the attraction of Judaism was a widespread belief, to which many sources testify, that Jews possessed special magical powers and that their sacred words were particularly efficacious in incantations. Now, I think this actually is a a biblical principle, because if God spoke in the beginning and created everything out of words, then the words, the kind of words he used, should be able to make things. So there were, there were a lot of people who thought, oh, if we could master the language that God used, we too can create things, like gold. <laughs> now, we, we find this actually in Acts. Acts 13.6, it says, When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Because, and what did he do? He would go out there like a medicine man, and he would convince people that he could do magical things, and he would speak some Hebrew words, and everyone's like, oh, language of God. And, and he would trick a lot of people. And you see several times, how often do, do the apostles and Acts have to do with sorcerers? Now, it is likely, too, that there were a fringe Jewish syncretistic and sectarian doctrines which dealt with mystery. And actually, some of the, some of the Gnostic heresies that you see in Colossians and you see in um, Ephesians come directly from this time where the Jews realized they had secret knowledge. We have secret knowledge that the world doesn't have, and it makes us powerful, and it makes us blessed. And, and this idea that if you have the right knowledge, this dualistic, Gnostic way of looking at the world actually is a Jewish heresy before it is a Christian heresy. And if you, and if you see this all the time, why is, why is Paul always talking about flesh versus spirit? Flesh versus spirit. You go through all of his epistles, flesh versus spirit. Spirit, are you of the spirit or are you of the flesh? The flesh or the spirit, they're at war. There's all this stuff that he's talking about. He's also talking about mysteries. And the whole context there are all these Jewish heresies that were already existing because when the Jews went out and mixed with the Gentiles of the world, sometimes they used their Judaism as a magic power. <laughs> sometimes they mixed their Judaism with the local cults and everything got super weird. Now, overall, in, in the exile, the Jews tended to abandon the idol worship that had, in part, alienated them from God. And I remember this when I was driving here, but I forgot to find the verse. But there is actually a promise made to the Jews to say, if you return to me, I will take idol worship away from you. God tell, tells them, I will, I will make it so that you cease to worship idols. And what I find to be very odd, given all the idol worship when they were still a nation in the Old Testament, that when, when Jesus comes, you know, they're fighting over not what God is the true God, but what the true God means and doesn't mean. They're actually, oddly, very, they're cured almost of idol worship. And, and, if, and it's something you don't readily notice, but go and look at what the prophets warn, and then look at how Jesus argues with them. They're never arguing, right? There's no high places in the same way. There, there's synagogues all over the world, and you go there, and they're not worshiping mammon, they're worshiping Yahweh. And, and, and it's, it's odd 
that though there was some compromise, generally they were actually cured of idol worship. Now, most of the nation of Israel constituted what was known as the dispersion, a term which eventually expressed not banishment, but judgment. The the word changed over time. It used to just mean that you're you're sent out. But then the word came to mean, no, 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 you are cursed by God for disobedience. And they knew that they were, and that's why the holiness code was so important to them. They were exiles. They had lost their nation and their throne. They had lost their power. They had lost their temple before, and, and they had to protect these things and fight for these things. Now, Josephus reminded his countrymen that there was no nation in the world which had not among them a part of the Jewish people, since it was widely dispersed over the whole world among its inhabitants, yet they had nowhere found a real home. Their social exclusiveness, their incomprehensible ethics, their uncompromising religion, somehow is always tolerated. It is at times persecuted. But everybody is like, we cannot kill these people and make them go away. And so eventually, all kinds of nations that they went to were like, listen, okay, guys, okay, okay, we get it. There's one God. Worship him, and we will leave you alone if you leave us alone. And, and if you go back and you look at the historical record, this is actually true all over the place. So, so God took them into exile. He led them there. And then while they were there, much like he promised in Deuteronomy, he blessed them. When they worshipped him and they were devoted to him and they loved him more than they loved the world, when they, when they feared him more than they feared the nations, they prospered. And, and it's another example where God's promises are true, even if for 587 years, he's not telling us, right? He's not writing new scriptures. He's not, he's not coming down from heaven and giving new messages. But we see, even when it seems as if he is silent, he's still speaking. He led them into exile, and he protected them while they were there, and he prospered them while they were there because he had a purpose for them. And I'm sure, right, in far-flung, you're sitting there, you're a Jew, and you're sitting in what is now Spain— and you're like, why? What happened to us? Right? It would be hard to imagine, right? especially if it's 168 BC, that you're like, oh, the fullness of time is coming. Nobody would have thought that way. They would not have understood their circumstances to be like, you know what? This is the fullness of time. And how many of us still struggle with this? That's how I concluded last week. How many of us, think, oh, you know what? Is, right now is certainly the perfect time for God to do X, Y, or Z. No, we're always thinking that something else has to be done. Something else has to be prepped. Something else has to be changed. Something else has to be manipulated in order for God to do his thing. Because, again, his ways are not ours. He is not us. Now, Judaism's heartbeat was in Jerusalem. They would collect taxes. This is another thing that the local governments would allow. All the Jews would collect money wherever they were and send it back to Jerusalem. There was a governing body that was centered in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin, and and that actually had courts throughout all of the dispersion. Just like we have a Supreme Court, and then you have the the, um, Ninth Circuit Court and the Fifth Circuit Court, and eventually what you do is you start locally, and your case goes higher and higher. Well, this is how they worked. They, They literally almost had their own government, and other governments were like, oh, that's fine. Now, how? How did they get such a blessing? If you go back and you look at all the countries that Italy, all the tribes that um, the Romans conquered, nobody else was allowed to have their own government. Nobody else was allowed to have their own religion. Nobody else was allowed to have their own taxation system. And, and this concept is partially what the, apo- uh, the apostles are talking about, where they say, listen, right, don't worry, you're, 
you're the dispersion, but your, your capital, the capital of your commonwealth is Jerusalem above. And this way of talking was the way that they would often talk to themselves. They would say, hey, listen, you guys in Spain. I, I don't, it wasn't called Spain then, but just f- follow with me. Okay? You guys in Spain, don't worry. Jerusalem is free. We're, we're holding the line. We're still here. And this way of talking that Paul uses is the, is the way that they used to talk to one another during the dispersion. You're aliens and you're exiles, but don't worry. You're from Jerusalem above, and she is free. Now, something that I want to bring up here okay, is that in, in some places where the Jews went, they had to deal with Hellenism. They couldn't just stamp it out because they were in the minority. And so they're like, oh, you know what? Well, let's make use of it then. So let's translate the Old Testament into Greek. Let's read some Greek thinkers. Let's, re- let's study rhetoric. Let's study the classics. Let's, let's educate ourselves. And the people back in Jerusalem and Judea hated this because they thought it was automatically compromise. But... it. it, it <laughs> It was a very complicated situation because the people out in the dispersion wanted to be nothing more but real Jerusalem Jews. And all the Jerusalem Jews are like, there's nothing you can do to be real Jerusalem Jews because you're compromised with Greek Hellenistic culture. And, you, and, you, and so you have this dispute. You have this war going on internally. Now, Israel, the vast majority of which was dispersed over the whole inhabited earth, had ceased to be set apart as a special nation. A dispersed group of people is not a nation. It's not a nation with power. It, it, it cannot negotiate with other nations. It has no throne. It has no central location. They acted like they did because they, they had Jerusalem. But how much power and force do they have to shake and move the whole world? They're, they're a non-entity. They're a side issue. That's why people are like, listen, just let them do their thing. Let them pray their prayers and read their books and eat their special food. And they couldn't serve in the military because they refused to march on, a sun, on, on the Sabbath, which is kind of funny. Right? <laughs> they were like, we can't deal with these people because we've got people to defeat and we can't be waiting around for these Jews. And we can't certainly take them with us because they will just make a real havoc. So they had this sort of cultural influence. But also, they're nobodies. So they're in this weird position where they're powerful, but they're not powerful. They had ceased at this point to be a special nation. And we, this is the context of Paul and his very controversial statements in Romans 11. He says in Romans 11.32, For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. So part of what happened before Jesus came is that Israel became a nation like all the others. They lost their special status. Because what he was coming to do is he was coming to establish a new Israel. He himself is Israel. And when you read the Gospel of Matthew and you, and you compare it to Deuteronomy, you see what is happening is, is a whole new kingdom is being created. A whole new people is being created. Now, when God does that, does he just leave off from the previous group? Does he ever just wipe the whole earth out and start fresh? Well, he never does that. Every time he builds something new, he uses people from what he is going to destroy. He does it with Noah, he does it in Egypt, he does it with Moses, he does it with the kingdom, and they go into exile, they come back. There's all these stories where he never just gets rid of everyone. But there was this controversy internally. There was this dispute internally. The diaspora became more cut off from the surrounding Gentile civilization. It became more internalized. And then what you had is this eastern-western divide. Okay, the, one group wanted to be more Jewish, 
And they only wanted to speak Aramaic, which actually, why wouldn't it be Hebrew? They were even confused about their own history. The other group wanted to speak Greek and be like, right, be Jews, but be friendly with the world. And this east-west divide is what you find in Acts chapter 6, where they created deacons. And it says that the Hellenists and Hebrews argued. There's a huge difference between Western and Eastern dispersion. In the truly representative gathering in Jerusalem on Pentecost, the division of the dispersion is actually listed in two sections. If you look geographically the way that they're listed, there's clearly an Eastern and Western group. So Luke, when he's writing it, still can't avoid the fact that these guys are not the same. Right? They're the same, but they're not the same. There is clearly a divide between these two groups. And what was read for us today, you hear, you hear, right? The, there's one party who wants everybody to be Jewish. And there's one party who's like, no, 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 it's okay. You don't have to be a Jew first. What matters is Christ. And that's why they talk about the circumcision party. That's why they're talking about the Hellenists. They're talking about all these disputes internally within Israel. Who is Yahweh? What does he expect of us? What has he done with the nations? How is he going to bring David back? Is there a resurrection? Right? Does everybody have to be as purely Jewish as possible? Or is there, and, and can we slacken it up a little bit, when you've got a guy living in Spain who's working at the marketplace surrounded by Spaniards? I know they weren't Spaniards, but just follow with me. And, and this, this is what the apostles are having to deal with. Stop telling everybody that they've got to follow the law of Moses. Stop telling everybody they've got to be circumcised. That's not the program anymore. And that whole divide already existed. It already existed because the Western Jews were like, they already had this. Oh, you, you have to be circumcised. You have to come into the community and be cleansed and follow all these things. It already existed when Jesus showed up. From the Christian point of view, the network of dispersed Jewish communities had a special significance in this requirement of cleansing and renewal. I'm sorry, I skipped a part. I apologize. So, yeah, okay. I just had to gather my thoughts for a second. So you have this eastern-western division, and and I'm going to just skip way ahead now. You have these warring parties, and sometimes it's very confusing for us. If you heard the 30 verses that were read for us today, they're talking about all these different parties, and if you don't know who all these different parties is, it doesn't make sense why they're they're making all these arguments. But you see it all the time. There are people in, in Judaism who thought that you had to be as purely Jew as possible, but they didn't even understand what that meant because they spoke Aramaic and not Hebrew. Then you've got this other group who says, no, 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 no. We're now in the world, and we have to now learn how to speak to the world because we're out in it. And don't we have Christians like that now? No, you must be pure. I don't understand what you're talking about because I can't find it in John Calvin. What are you doing talking that way? You contradict the confession. Okay, well, which confession? Right? We have these people who think, no, you must be pure, it must be right, it must be perfect, and you have other people who are like, no, stop. How are we going to contextualize in the world? Right? We're going to wear jeans and flip-flops and have contemporary everything, and it's going to be seeker-sensitive, we're not going to be... Right? It's not a... And then there's other people who are like, no, worship is a family meeting, and it doesn't matter if anyone doesn't understand what happens if they're a newbie. <laughs> and you have these debates. And the debate is not new. It wasn't new in Jesus' day. It wasn't new in the Apostles' day. and It wasn't new during the dispersion. Who decides who is a Jew and who isn't? Who decides who is a Christian and who isn't? 
In Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 to 19, now with this Western Eastern thought, this is why the Apostle Paul has to talk this way. He says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. And and this is why he's trying to convince everyone. You have different gifts. You have different emphasis. You have different roles. You do different things. Some of us are here to make sure that we all clean our hands before we go to the table, to make sure that our doctrines are right in our heads. And some of us are here to say, hey, what about Joe Yo down the street who doesn't know nothing about nothing? And he comes in here, and you say, kneel for confession. And we have people who will walk out the door because we're Americans, and we don't kneel for nobody. Now, what do we do? Do we stop kneeling? Or do we just say, that guy's an idiot, and move on? And, and <laughs> during the dispersion, they fought about this. Jesus fought about this. The apostles fought about this. And what we need to do is understand what side of this line we are on. Because I'll be honest, I've been a Christian now for a long time. I can actually finally say that, two decades. And I don't care that much about evangelism. It's not my job. It's really not my job. I am a troubler of Israel from birth, new birth, and my job is to make sure that everybody is reading the right confessions, has the right version of the Bible, is singing the right songs and doing the right things. And what sometimes gets confusing is people think, well, all of us have to be like that. My joke from, from conversion is this. I don't want to go out and catch fish. You bring me the fish, and I will clean the fish. That's my job. Now, what are we going to do if nobody catches fish? What do we do if we catch a bunch of fish? And the, right, You watch these evangelism videos. They go out on the street. They convert some guy, and then they pat him on the back and say, good luck with that. And you're like, who's going to clean that fish? That guy is going to go back home, and the same porn that he was watching yesterday is going to be on his computer, and the same thoughts in his head, and the same video games, and the same habits, and everything is going to be the same, and all you've done is make twice the son of Satan. So what do we do then? We don't do that? We don't go out and evangelize those kids at the skateboard park? We leave all those kids in the public schools. Good luck with that. There was a fight that Jesus had to deal with when he came in the flesh, and it's still the fight that we have to fight now. We are not all the same. We are not here for the same reasons. We do not know the same people. We have different missions. We have different skills. We have different amounts of grace to do different things. And what we have to do is stop fighting And what we have to do is, what is the focal point? Is the focal point being an American? Is that the nationalism that we should all rally around? Is it democracy? I was recently having a a discussion with pastors, and I mentioned the fact that constitutional monarchy was a perfectly legitimate form of government, and I was laughed out of the room. Now, you may disagree with me or agree with me. I don't care. But the point is, like, how ahistorical do you have to be to not realize that... Constitutional monarchy is at least legitimate. I mean, Jesus, the Lord God, did actually choose it for De- in Deuteronomy. See how upset I am? This is what I'm talking about. If, if it's good enough for God, it's good enough for me. Now, I would rather not have a king. Thank you very much. I like my republic. But I'm at least recognizing that when we go in other parts of the world, people there may want a different form of government. And, and this is what we fight over. 
We fight over what's more important, catching fish or cleaning fish. Well, it, it doesn't matter how many fish you catch if they're not clean. Other people are like, why are you out there in the water getting all wet, in the mud, and, and out there in that nonsense? Making yourself unclean, eating with those people, sitting with those people, talking with those people, understanding their culture. Why are you doing that? Why are you contextualizing? And one of the things that we have to understand is that Jesus' first mission was not conquering the world, but conquering Israel. He came, we're going to see, to the lost sheep of Israel. He told his apostles, go out and don't preach to the Gentiles, preach to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, I just want to make this point, because there are two emphasis, and everyone has one or the other. Sometimes we have both. But if we don't get the people of God in the right position, nothing else is going to matter after that. You can't build on something where the foundation is, just, is broken and cracked and weak. It's not going to work. When Jesus came, he said to his twelve, he instructed them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, is that all? Did he leave it there? Did Jesus come to save Israelites? Or did Jesus come to save the world? Now, Jesus came to save the world. But what was the first thing that he did? And so some of us, some of us who are very worried about culture wars, some of us who are very worried about what's going on outside of the church of God, I have a question for you. Where did the world learn how to do those things? Okay, long before Sally and Jenny came to the altar to get married, a, place, a thing they ought not do, in a place they ought not do it, there was already a woman there leading the liturgy. Long before we were confused about the definitions of man and woman, we were confused about the definition of the word day. And yes, I'm going to go after all of you lovely people who don't think that there is a literal six-day creation. Six 24-hour days. The fact that we argue about that, which is fine, let's discuss it, and then we go out to the world and we're like, what is, why are these guys having so much trouble over simple definitions? And what do we have to offer the world if we ourselves are not unified? And what's going to unify us? What's going to unify us? Is it a confession? Is it a liturgy? Is it a song? Right? Is it a program of the, uh, right? eating the right foods? Having the right holidays? What is going to unite us? What needs to come down into the midst of not only this church, but the church in North America, the church in the world? We're, we're still fighting east-west. We're still fighting internally uh, Protestants. And the problem that we have is that we're focused on all the wrong things. Right? There's some of us who just want to argue and argue and argue and argue and argue. It doesn't really matter to me what confession you use. We just need one. Right? So why, are we, why am I spending so much time making sure that people have the right one? The people in Judea, the people of Israel, were comfortable. They had their holidays. They were able to send their money back to Jerusalem. They were, a lot of them, in a very blessed position. And Jesus came, and he disrupted all of that. Jesus came, and he said, you know what? We need to unite. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees said, no way. And so what he did is he started with a remnant, 
right? And this is what Paul does. He compares Jesus to Elijah. It says in Romans 11, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knees to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. He started with a remnant. He said, follow me. He said, come this way. He said, this is what's important, that you love one another as I have loved you. It's not confusing anymore. Go to the Sermon on the Mount and read what you're supposed to do. He is the sacrifice. He is the temple. He is the body. He is the law. He is the eschaton. He is where we're headed. And we rally around that. And then, once we do that, we have something to say to the world. What kind of unity are we offering the world when we do not ourselves have unity? Right? If, you're, if you're a husband and wife, and you're going to try to unify the, the whole household, what kind of unity are you going to give your children if you and your wife do not have unity? If, if, if all we have is ridicule and mockery of the Baptists, what are we going to say to atheists? Right? How are we going to take an atheist's honest ideas, honest, honest, they honestly hold them, how are we going to sit down and have a serious conversation with them when we don't take the views of brothers and sisters seriously? What do we have to offer the world if we can't do it ourselves? And so Jesus came, okay, and Judea was a foreign country, and he invaded it, and they tried to kill him for it. And so he went and hid for a time and came back, and he conquered it. And then he said, okay, guys, now what we need to do is go gather the 7,000, those who actually are going to rally around me, so that we can go and conquer the world. And just to prove it, on Pentecost, he, he does it in a microcosm. He first has the spirit descend upon Israelites and then upon Samaritans and to the ends of the earth. And it's not until the household of God gets its act together, then we will have something to offer the world. And so what is the rallying point? What is the focal point? What is the thing that matters most of all? You have to start there and build out from there. And I think it's this. It's Joel chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vegetable and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? We worship three persons in one being. That is unity and diversity in perfect harmony. Can we say, as a Redeemer Church, as the CRC, as Protestants in North America, that we have that level of both unity and diversity in harmonious love? Now, this is, this is the last thing I'm going to say about this, and hopefully it makes sense. I really hope it does. Was the scattering of Israel throughout the world a problem? 
Was it an opportunity? Was the fact that the people living in Palestine and Judea had become like the nations of the world, was that a problem? Or was that an opportunity? When I was in Ukraine, this is, we were having this very serious meeting, and, and, I, and I gave them this word. This was the word that I gave them. I said, is this war a problem, or is it an opportunity? Is it an opportunity now to love people that you would have never had access to? Is it, is it an opportunity to gather resources and to provide for people and to have a ministry well beyond what you ever were allowed to have before? Because when people are starving and people need lights and people need supplies, they, they will let anyone come and help them. And then they see who is the loving people and who are not. Israel was scattered all over the world. And in one sense, you could say it was a problem. But it was, it was the means by which God spread the gospel through the whole world within a generation. And so is our disunity at this point, the fact that there are Eastern Orthodox people and Roman Catholic people and Protestant people and Baptist people, we love you, and there's all these different groups, is all their different views a problem or an opportunity? Is your gifts that are different than mine a problem or an opportunity? Is the unbelieving coworkers and neighbors you have a problem or an opportunity? The fullness of time meant that God did all kinds of things that didn't make any sense to anybody. And there were all kinds of problems to fix, but those problems were the opportunities for there to be one God, for for him to be the focal point, for him to be the one they worship, for him to be the one that they rallied around. And so what I want you to do is think during this Advent season, the Lord has come, the Lord is here, the Lord is coming. What we need is in our, right, every believing, every heart needs to be a believing heart, and what every heart needs is the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. What we need to do is find the unity and diversity and perfect harmony, just like the Trinitarian God that we serve. What we need to do is stop looking at all the problems and, and see instead opportunities. Opportunities to be selfless, opportunities to be forgiving, opportunities to serve, opportunities to let unity and diversity live in harmony. That is what we need. And, and, and the only way we're going to get it is if we get on our knees, as, as Joel has said, and we turn back to the Lord Jesus. He unifies, he cleanses, he perfects, he builds. It's him or it's nothing. It's Christ or it's chaos. Amen. Father, we thank you for your goodness and kindness to us. We thank you for the dispersion of the Jews. We thank you for the 14 generations in which, Lord, you were not inactive. Lord, you were not wringing your hands, but that you were bringing about the fullness of time in which the Lord Jesus would come and unify the world, starting with Israel, around him. I pray, God, that the same unity and diversity that you have enjoyed with your Father and the Son, that we would know it, that we would taste it, that we would desire it, that we would pursue it, Lord, and that we would experience it in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Amen.